an hour this morning, uh, we will have the privilege of doing for all eternity. If you're able to remain standing just a a bit longer, uh, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus. Thank you guys for helping us to sing to the Lord this morning. We are so grateful for you guys, for the work that you put in to help us. Uh, You might notice that there's um, new projectors um, up now, and uh, hopefully that it's hopefully your eyesight now works better. So, um, yeah, so you didn't even have to pay for an eye appointment. Uh, but uh, the projectors had been ordered quite some time, but they were in a shipping container somewhere. So that they they finally got here, and um, we're grateful to to have those. This morning we want to begin. I think it's on page forty-five. If you just want to use a Bible from the church, but we want to begin at verse sixteen of. Exodus chapter 2, and then read down through the remainder of the chapter, there in verse 25. I'll go ahead and read verse 15, so I'm going to bump back up. So, this is God's word for us this morning, and here's what God says. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Rule, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. Your word, like you, are forever. Our prayer is that now as we look at a portion of your word, that you, by your spirit, would be at work in our midst and even at work in each of our hearts and lives, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word, that you would use your word by your spirit to work in our hearts, to change us, to transform us. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Well, we're bringing chapter 2 of Exodus to a close. Chapters 1 and 2 just give us brief sketches of the context and the situation. It's, it's, it's a bit of the preliminaries, uh, the, and we're now winding up or wrapping up these preliminaries before we see the, how the Lord in chapter 3 will reveal His name through the rescue of His people. And yet, before we get to that point, there's a few more things, a few more loose ends that the Lord wants us to know about how he's about to move and act. And here as we begin reading, we begin reading that Moses has now uh, left Egypt. In a sense, as if we had never read the book of Exodus before, if we never knew how the story unfolds, um, if we'd never seen the movie with Charlton Heston, uh, then, then at this point in our reading, we would be a bit crushed. Uh, Moses obviously was born, and, and it, it just, you just felt like he was going to be the one whom God was going to use to, to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, and, and now he has fled. And yet, before we get to the end of chapter 2, uh, we, we, are, we are reminded that ultimately, while Moses is an instrument in the Lord's redemptive plans, the, the most active agent, the real cause, the real shaker and mover in Israel's redemption will be the Lord who remembers the covenant he made to his people. Two things I want us to make note of, both of which revolve around the notion of hope. You see, the, the opening episode here in our reading this morning uh, really leaves us with little hope. And in fact, I would call that the, the dashed hopes of delayed redemption. The, but then, in that last little segment that we've read, I, I want us to see something of the de- definite hope that determines redemption. First of all, dashed hopes. Uh, Moses, uh, we're, we're, I, I didn't read the whole backstory, but Moses has fled Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh has heard what Moses has done, and now Pharaoh has it out for him. He, he, he's got Pharaoh on his wanted, he's got Moses on his wanted list. And so um, uh, Moses flees. He flees because just a, a few verses earlier, Moses began to identify with his people. It says he saw his brothers and their flesh oppression and their mistreatment. And, and in fact, he saw a, 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 an Egyptian taskmaster striking a Hebrew slave. And, 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 and that uh, ignited some response in Moses' life. He struck the Egyptian taskmaster and buried him. So the implication is that he, when he struck him, he killed him. And uh, out of that, Pharaoh catches wind, um, and he and he leaves. And, and we're left with he's there. He is by a well somewhere in Midian. It's like wow, that was that didn't turn out the way that we thought it would. We, we thought that Moses was going to stay and and battle against Pharaoh and and be the agent by which the uh, the Israelites would be released from slavery. Well. Not on this day. It's not the timing for that to occur. Uh, Moses winds up at a well in Midian. 
the, the Midianites really are, are um, descendants of Abraham. You remember after Sarah dies, Abraham marries again, and, uh, and uh, his, his, uh, his, his new wife has several sons, and one of the sons of his new wife is, the, is really the, the origins of the people of, of Midian. Um, and, and, and yet it's so humorous uh, that um, just in uh, three verses, 20, 21, and 22, Moses goes to Midian, sits down by a well, sees some shepherds mistreating um, some ladies, and before you know it, uh, he's married and got a kid. Well, it doesn't really happen that quickly in real time, so we're actually collapsing and summarizing here quickly. And, and, and yet, what he says there in verse 22 about his son, she gave birth, that is Zipporah, Moses' wife, she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, that gives you a glimpse, I think, of Moses' where he is at, if you would. It, it, it just shows you his own understanding of what is going on. I, I, I am wandering around aimlessly in no man's land. Now, that's not a really optimistic description of one's experience. And yet, it is an accurate perspective. It's just that it's not the only perspective of what's in play here. God has a perspective of what is going on here. Uh, And uh, uh, he has Moses right where he wants Moses to be. And I would even suggest he not only has Moses right where he wants Moses to be, but he has Moses right where Moses needs to be. You and I oftentimes assess God's providences and God's timings and God's arrangement of circumstances. And, and quite honestly, from our perspective, things just don't seem to make sense. They just don't seem to add up. I mean, if, if you're going to raise up a deliverer to rescue your people, you, you don't work out arrangements so that uh, that deliverer gets run out of town and then spends the next 40 years in the wilderness in Midian uh, with a, a wife and children. And yet, that's our perspective of things. God has not abandoned His plans at this moment. Uh, God has not forgot what He's up to and what He's doing. Uh, there's, there's wonderful uh, things unfolding. And, and that should be an encouragement to us. For you and I might find ourselves in circumstances that seem to make no sense to God's glorious, beautiful plans and arrangements in life. We're just, we're just, well, you name your kid Gershom, because that's how you feel at that moment. I mean, I'm just wandering aimlessly in no man's land. There, there's, there's, just, there's just no real plan. There's no real hope. There's no, nothing really significant unfolding. I'm just wasting away in the wilderness. And I don't think that that Moses has been put in exile because he's somehow being punished. No, I would think that Moses is in exile because he's being prepared. 
The writer of Hebrews spends a great deal of time comparing Jesus with a lot of the people in the Old Testament, and there's a lot of space given to comparing Jesus with Moses. And Moses, uh, while he certainly doesn't uh, reach up to the uh, standard of Jesus, uh, Moses, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, is a good and faithful servant in God's house. He is commended. And, and already, I think we see wonderful things that are worthy of commending Moses about. For instance, all the way back when he was still in, in Egypt, and he sees the Egyptian taskmaster striking the Hebrew uh, slave. And uh, Moses, whatever else you want to say about it, Moses had the courage to step into that situation. Courage is, is, a, is a very important human virtue. And I would even press that further. Not only is it a generically important human virtue, virtue it is a vitally important manly virtue. Moses, I think, should be commended for the way that he stepped into what he saw as oppression. Maybe you could judge some of the mechanics and details of it. But even when he gets to Midian and he sees the shepherds mistreating the, the ladies, what does he do? He displays courage. He says, it just, there's something consistent about Moses. He sees wrongs and he steps into it. And before you know it, the shepherds are gone, and the ladies are, are, are having their, their flocks watered, and in fact, they're able to go home early that day. That, that's a wonderfully commendable trait of courage that we see in, displayed in Moses' life. He sees what's wrong, and he enters into it. Now, there's other things that just like with any of us, probably still are in play that need to be worked on. In fact, I, I, I don't know how to differentiate the fine line between courage and lesser uh, traits, like anger. There's, there's always a, 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 at least a smidgen of anger even in courage, and, 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 yet, and yet anger can also hijack godly courage. So maybe Moses still has lessons to learn. Maybe, maybe there's some things still in play. Maybe, maybe this time in the wilderness is an important uh, preparatory experience for, for Moses. In other words, here we are, another 40 years delaying the redemption from Egyptian slavery, and, and God is not inattentive to what's going on. God has wonderful plans and benefits that are accruing from this. For, for one thing, I would suggest to you that while Moses had identified with his brothers earlier uh, and entered into the situation courageously when he saw them being mistreated, I think Moses is now getting a, even a more deeper, more robust lesson in what it feels like to identify with his brothers. His brothers are, if you would, sojourners in a foreign land. Moses is, is getting a, a fresh experience of what it looks like, what it consists of, what it feels like to be a sojourner in a foreign land. Forty years he's away from home now. 
40 years, he experiences life detached from his brothers. You know, when it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that one of the, one of the beautiful things about Jesus is that he is a high priest who, in entering into our world, experienced life in ways that now we experience life amid all of the suffering and the trials and the temptations and the difficulties. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 4 that he is a sympathetic high priest. I may not know what you're going through. You may not know what I'm going through. But one thing that we, each of us can fall back on is Jesus knows what each of us are going through. Moses, I would suggest to you, while in Midian as a sojourner, wandering around aimlessly in no man's land, is, 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 is experiencing uh, so that he would feel more sympathetically toward the plight of his brothers back in Egypt. On a practical level, uh, Moses, for, the, for these 40 years in preparation, is uh, learning how to navigate the terrain of a wilderness. He's going to have to be the leader of uh, of of a large nation of people to lead them through how to navigate uh, life in a wilderness. You can have to do that for 40 years. So, so now for 40 years, he's experiencing life in a dry, arid, difficult, hostile wilderness. He's, he's getting firsthand the lessons. Lo, Moses, I would suggest to you, is learning another virtue while he's in the wilderness. He's learning perhaps what it feels like to be humbled or even, if we might say, humiliated. Whereas, whereas if you would think of the virtue of courage, uh, if you were to look at any famous philosopher in the past and, and they were to talk about ethics and virtues and character traits, all of them have ca- courage on their list. But you know, there's a distinctly Christian virtue that, that Aristotle and Plato and those guys don't seem to know how to put on their list. And that is the virtue of humility. That humility ought to be, humility is, humility should be a chief virtue of any follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told even of the Lord Jesus Christ, once again from the writer of Hebrews, that, that he learned obedience through what he suffered. He, he was humbled and humiliated through his sufferings, our Lord was. And I think it's no less uh, opposite in terms of Moses' case. Now for 40 years in a tough place, uh, what does a tough place do for you? Well, it either makes you incredibly bitter and mad or it does a sweet work of making us meek and humble. In Numbers chapter 12, we're told of Moses. 
when, when he is getting dust up and flack from uh, the people that are following him in the wilderness, we're told that he was a humble or meek man. In fact, it says there's no one on the face of the earth that is as humble as Moses. Where did he learn such humility? He learned humility, I would suggest, in being a part of his experience for 40 years in Midian. And in fact, a wonderful compliment to the virtue of courage is this virtue of humility. Many of us like the notion of humility. We just would figure out, is there a way... Uh, without going through the curriculum package of, of, of learning humility, that we could learn humility. It's just like all, all of us want, well, many of us want the notion of patience, so we just want it, want it to happen quickly. We just don't want the lessons of patience to try our patience. Same way with, with humility. But think about this from another angle. What else has God up to? Well, guess, guess who, guess who Mo- Moses goes to Midian. And, and, and when we get to chapter 18 of the book of Exodus, now there's a catch here. When we get to chapter 18, we're told that Zipporah's father is Jethro. I don't know if you caught it here, but in chapter 2, we're told that Z- Z- Zipporah's father is Rule. And, and it could be that... is. One of them's a middle name and one of them's a first name, I don't know. But I would suggest to you that what, what's really in play here is that here in chapter two, 2, the head of the family, the head of the clan is probably Rule, who is probably Jethro's father. And, and by the time we get to chapter 18 of Exodus, Jethro's father, Rule, is probably dead. And now Jethro is now head of the clan, head of the family. So, so in other words, in other cultures, they use the word father differently than maybe we do. When we think of the word father, we think of it very exclusively in terms of who is, my, uh, who is ahead of me biologically. Uh, uh, and, and, and yet in other cultures, many non-Western cultures, Father is a broader term. It, it just refers to the, the male who is in charge of that family unit, that clan, that tribe, if you would. And that's probably why there's the name change it, between chapter 2, it has him as rule, and chapter 18, it has him as uh, Jethro. But anyway, when we get to chapter 18, uh, Jethro sees all that God has done through Moses. And so I'm fast-forwarding quite a ways here. And, and, uh, and guess what? By the time we get to uh, chapter 18, uh, Jethro uh, makes this wonderful confession of faith that, that the Lord is God. Here we have this sweet reminder uh, that part of what God is doing by sending Moses to Midian for a while is he's not only interested in the rescue of his people Israel, he's interested in peoples from every tribe and language and nation knowing that he is the Lord God. He's never parochial. He's never uh, 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 just simply a, a neighborhood God. He is global. He is the the universal God. And here we see then God uses this time in Midian to awaken the Midians to who the Lord God is. That, that all because of things getting crazy in Egypt and Moses has to flee from Egypt to Midian, that that becomes the stage by which now the Midians would come to see the powerful great hand of God. Just 
Stop. We could go on, perhaps. My point is that, is that when, while Moses thinks that all of his hopes have been dashed, he's, he's now going to finish out his years as a known name in the wilderness in Midian, taking care of a flock. And, 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 and so that even bleeds out in how he names his kid Gershom. Uh, I'm just wandering aimlessly in no man's land. God is at work. In the days that feel the most hopeless for you, in the days that you and I might assess, ain't nothing happening. I'm washed up. Uh, It's all over with. Uh, God is at work. God is doing something. It might be preparing you for what he has next, or it might be using you in an odd, strange way to bring other people other people to himself. Uh, it might be one or it might be the other. Or in Moses' case, it, it might be both. But God is at work. There's never a moment in your life, no matter how dark, no matter how bleak, no matter how hopeless you assess it to be. To add injury to insult, you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong about that. God never abandons his people. God always is at work both preparing his people in the midst of their difficulties and using his people in strange ways in the midst of their difficulties. So you have a good week marked out for you? God will use that good week in your life. You have a bad week that's about to unfold on you? God will use that in your life. Second thing I want to touch on just briefly is the definite hope that determines redemption. Moses is out of the scene. For all practical purposes, uh, ain't nothing going to happen back in Egypt by, in terms of releasing uh, the Israelites from captivity. No one seems to be at that place watching and listening and taking care of things. No one but God. Look at verses 23 and t- through 25 again. During those many days, and, and it is many days. Again, we, just like uh, within a couple of verses, Moses uh, rescues some ladies. Mary is one of them, uh, has a child, just in three verses. Now, it, in a part of one verse, we are now covering 80 years or thereabouts. During, um, I'm sorry, 40 years or thereabouts. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. In other words, the policies of the previous Pharaoh uh, were still intact. I mean, if you think about it, uh, boy, it's really hard to get any government to walk back on its programs. So uh, anyway, it, once it gets started, you ain't going to undo that. But, um, but, but anyway, now, uh, they groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out to help. They cried out, they cried out for help. Now, I could be wrong about this, uh, but, but I think what the text is explicitly telling us is that the Israelites are back in Egypt. They are under the weight of their slavery, And their slavery is causing great agony and heartache. They are groaning. They are crying. Uh, They are crying out for help. 
But our text does not explicitly tell us that they cried out to the Lord for help. Now, it does say the next, the next statement, um, their cry, this is the end of verse 23, their cry for a rescue from slavery came up to God. So what I would suggest to you, the best way to read this, the plainest way, way to read this, is that they felt the weight of their burden. They felt the difficulty of their circumstances. And just like any of us, when we're under the pile, we cry out for help. That doesn't mean we cry out explicitly to the Lord for help. And yet what I want you to see is that when you and I don't have enough sense to cry out explicitly to God for help. All we do is we offer this heart-crushed cry. Praise God, since there's only one true God in the universe anyway, the only God who is God hears the cries of all hurting, oppressed people. I would suggest to you that Israel at this moment is probably flirting neck deep into the worship of false gods. They're they're probably idolaters. In other words, they they don't have enough clarity of mind to know, let's turn to our God who, who, who is in control of all things, who made us and who's made promises to us. At this moment, I don't think they have enough sense to know that. They don't have enough awareness of God in their experience at that moment to know that. They are just generically crying out for help somebody somewhere but but here's the thing is that if you were to cry out to an idol guess what an idol it may have ears but it can't hear anything because it's not really a thing now this is not a, a prescription uh, to be sloppy in terms of, of uh, to whom we address our prayers. Uh, we, we, we take the, uh, the beautiful directive of our Lord when his disciples ask them, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and the first thing he does is make sure that they know who they're praying to. Our Father who art in heaven. For, for, for us, we, we don't have to just offer up, hello, is there anybody up there? I, I'm just going to toss this up and think that maybe one of those gods up there are going to maybe hear this and maybe be of help. I don't know. But, but no, we, we don't have to wander aimlessly like that. We are given instructions that the very Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we turn and trust in Christ, is now our Father. We don't have to offer a generic who, whom, to whom it may concern. We go right to our Father. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now through faith in Jesus, our Father. He hears the cries of all peoples. Oh, I, I don't know. Is there, what, is there six billion people on the face of the earth today? Somewhere like that? I don't know. It probably ebbs and flows. On the one hand, you're thinking, now, now, if all six billion people cried out at the same time, how could God individually hear each of those cries? Yeah. See, you're, you're thinking wrong categories. You're thinking, uh, look, it, it's, it's hard for you uh, 
uh, when you have multiple children and they're all clamoring for you at one time, it's hard for you, you to hear all of your children clamoring for you at one time. And, and, and your circuits are about to blow. But, but that's because you're a human being. That's because you're a created being. That's because you're finite and limited. But we're, we're not talking just a larger version of you and I. We're talking about the eternal, infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-seeing, all-hearing God. And we can all collectively, all six billion of us, uh, offer up a different request to God at the same time. And God could sort it out and hear each one of those cries, particularly individually. I hope that encourages you that your little meager crying for help is never met with, get away from me, kid, you're, you're bugging me. I hope that's meant to remind you that, that our God is infinite in ability, uh, which he can manage that. He can manage six billion requests at the same time. He, and, and not only does he have the ability to do that, he has the wisdom to differentiate and sort out and go with it. And, and he has the loving care to incline his ear to that. And yet what I want you to really see is that while he hears the cries of a people who arguably aren't even crying out to him at this moment because they don't have enough sense to do so, They don't really know who he is, but he knows who they are. And we're told here, uh, as they offer up this generic cry, it reaches God. And what does God do? And God, verse 24, heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He remembered his covenant. We are about to turn the page in the book of Exodus now. We are about to shift from the only, uh, the only times that God's name, uh, God, the name God, the term God has been used is just twice now. Here, here God hears the cries of his people. Back in chapter 1, God showed favor to the, to the Hebrew midwives. And, but, but now we are about to explode with information. We are about to explode with revelation. When we get to chapter 3, we are no longer left with the ambiguity of a God who was up there somewhere. Uh, But the basis of what we are about to see unfold in chapter 3 starts with God remembering the commitments that he has made. God has made a commitment to a people. God has made a commitment to to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God has called it. God has called that his people would be in Egyptian slavery for 430 years, and we're now nudging up close to that date, but now just on time, God remembers. Now, when it says God remembers, it doesn't mean, uh, oh, I forgot that. I remember. Uh, it, It means that God turns and begins implementing what he had promised at just the right time. God begins to execute the promises that he has made to his people. The basis upon which God will launch this rescue and redemption plan is the basis of his own own sure promises. 
Now, we would have to fast forward a whole bunch to catch us up to speed. But we just partook of the Lord's Supper. And I don't know if you caught it, but, but something that Jesus said in reference to his shed blood, for in this blood is the new covenant of my blood. A covenant is a part of the promises that God makes by which he carries out what he says. He does what he says. He follows through. He implements. He sustains what he says. And just like he made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and and now he is following through and making good on that promise. And we're about to see that unfold in a dramatic and, and, and sensational way. God makes a promise to any and all who this morning turn to Jesus. Any and all who turn to Jesus, who are trusting in him, shall not face judgment. We have been crossed over from death to life. We now belong to the one true God who made all people, but by the surety of his covenantal promises, by the surety of his promise to have a people and to redeem a people, and even the surety by which he carried that out through the shed blood of his own son, come to Jesus and be the beneficiary of all of the sure promises of God's covenant of how God rescues and redeems and restores a people to himself. Any who belong to Jesus, any who come to Jesus, he will in no way turn aside. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he does for us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Thank you, Father, for even in our darkest, most bleak, assessed days, You are faithful. You are accomplishing your good purposes in our lives. And we're thankful, Father, that even when we groan and cry for help, you hear us. We're grateful, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this.